This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by my dad. It is from Genesis chapters 38 and 39 entitled Parallels. Uh, feel free to check out all of our Shabbat messages on our website, which is zionhebraiccongregation.com. You'll also find my dad's weekly blog posts that he puts up. You can subscribe to those if you put your email in the little email subscribe box. Uh, you'll also find links to our archived Shabbat messages, and you will all, uh, on the, under those you'll find message notes and things like that. And you'll find links to our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, and the like. And you can also subscribe to our podcast messages on your favorite podcast platform provider, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and our theme music, as always, is by my buddy Evan Shaw. You can find him on Instagram at Evan Shaw Music and his website, EvanshawMusic.com. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Okay, let's, good to see you this morning. Let's turn, if you would, to uh, Genesis 38. So still in Genesis. Well, actually, no, I'm not. I am actually made it into Exodus. But, um, but this was born out of my readings in, in Genesis. So we're going to read Genesis 38. Um, we'll go into 39 through verse 12. Um, I've entitled this Parallels, Parallels, and um, I'll give you the outline in just a minute. Uh, <laughs> this stinks because I can't get mad at those parents with that kid because that's my grandkid. So I was like... All right, let's pray, and, and then we'll start. Father, thank you so much for this time that we can be here on Shabbat. And um, I thank you for the songs that we sing. I mean, I know we sing them so often, and we repeat them, but it's just, they're a blessing, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for that song of Jerusalem. It just, that is our hope. We look for our new Jerusalem. We can't wait for the new Jerusalem. We can't wait for Yeshua to come and establish his kingdom on this earth, and and when he sets things right, and we look forward to that. And Father, I pray that you just help us to stay faithful. If we are in the end of the end times, help us to just stay faithful to you, get prepared, and, and be all that you would have us to be, which is what we're supposed to do anyway. So whether we're absent from the body or, or present with you, and we're just going to be, whether we die or uh, you come, that we, we would be what we're supposed to be. So anyway, so bless, bless this time as we look at your word. And I ask that the Holy Spirit, Father, would just take this living word and at least give one thing to everybody who's here that they could take with them. Uh, we love you, Father, and we thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, so this is Parallels. 
That's the name of it, parallels. So in the introduction, I'll give you the parallels. I have three points, pitfalls and problems, that's number one. Point number two is progeny, P-R-O-G-E-N-Y. And then the third point is <coughs> prophecy. And then we'll wrap it all up with personalization. And as you know, my mind has to work in alliteration so that I, we have all P's today. Parallels, pitfalls and problems, progeny, prophecy, personalization. And that's somehow I got all of that out of this. So Genesis 38, if you would, if you just follow along with me. And like I said, we'll get into 39.12, all the way to 39.12. All right, I'll do my best here to, to make this flow as I read it. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Hezeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son shall be grown. Uh, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his shepherds to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away 
and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, I am with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, and bracelets, and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son. And he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharaoh's. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. And Joseph, now there's this break here, there's this, Joseph has already been sold to Potiphar. They insert, uh, God inserts chapter 38, now we're back to Joseph in 39. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and made him an overseer over his house, and all that he had, he put it into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And a blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There's none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee because I art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. All right, so I've not seen what I'm going to share with you until this week or last week, whenever this was, when I put this together. I don't know if I've ever, you know, I've, I've been reading more at one time in the Old Testament, which I said I did. So if you read in chapter 37, which is what I did, you get to the end of 37, it ends with um, Joseph being sold. It says thir uh, 37, 36, and the Midianites sold him, Joseph, uh, into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. All right, so y y it ends there. Then you get into chapter 38, all of a sudden there's this change of discussion going on. And then when you get into 39, we're back to Joseph. So you have Joseph, Judah, Joseph. All right, so, you know, so I'm reading along, reading along, and, and I, I won't tell you now what really sparked my thought process, but I'm reading along and had this thought process. And then I go into 39 and it's like, okay, wow, you have Judah and Joseph side by side in ways similar stories, but different responses. And I just thought, okay, these two stories are running parallel right now. And, and that's what I started thinking in my mind. All right, that then took my mind to John chapter three and John chapter four, because as I preached, whenever I preached on that a long time ago, um, you have again parallels. You have in John chapter three, this very religious person, Nicodemus, and then um, who, who's just lost and leaves his encounter with Yeshua, at least at that time, lost. And then you get into chapter four of, 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 of John and you have the woman at the well, a wicked sinner, <laughs> you know, who people would avoid She's in the presence of Yeshua. She leaves saved. Something, wow, there has to be a reason. And, and then you find out there's, there's parallels all throughout the scriptures. There's parallels throughout this whole passage when, with the, the children that are born. You know, the parallels there. It's just fascinating. There's this dualism that goes on. And so I, I don't think, we, we can't miss these parallels and I don't know when you see them, how you see them, why you don't see them, why I see some now and why I see them and I don't see why nobody else sees them. You know, I, I don't understand. But I think that scripture is laid out specifically by God, of course, under inspiration so that we'll catch these parallels. So that we, we can put these two things together, juxtaposed to one another and, and see this particular one thing God wants us to see. You know, he, he, he talks with this religious Nicodemus and he just kind of is all confused and get, doesn't get it. Bang, you get into the John chapter 4 and all of a sudden this woman, she sees it, gets it, and she, she leaves differently than she came. So I, I just love that stuff. And, and, and so there has to be a reason for this. And I think I first saw this in Arizona back during while Luke and I were still arguing with one another about all this messianic stuff, which I believe, but I told him I was going to beat him up on. 
And I was getting frustrated, when we're still out in Arizona, so I'm not even in the congregation at this time, but I was getting frustrated with the direction of the congregation because at that time, as we all do when we come into the Messianic movement, I think, I say all, oh, maybe not, we, we get enamored with Judaism and the rabbis and, and all these writings, and because, you know, this is a new treasure trove for us. Well, I was getting ticked off with the fact that, you know, we're slamming Christians and we're slamming Christian commentators and we're not going to read good Christian commentators. Now we're swinging over to Judaism and we're going to read what the rabbis say and, and Rambam and all these guys and, ooh, this is great stuff. And I was getting ticked off. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I don't know if you, you probably remember this, so I probably mentioned this before, but I said, you know, look, here's the thing. <laughs> All you guys would just, if, if, if there was an announcement, Nicodemus, the chief rabbi is going to be talking tonight. I, mean, all, I said, all you guys would just be clamoring to go hear him. Well, if at the same night, the woman at the well is going to be here. I'd be, I said, you guys be sitting over, sitting at his feet. I'd be hanging out with that woman over there. That's who I identify with. And, and it's not a slam on anything or anybody. It's just... There's these parallels that are put together for reasons, and I think it's important that we see these things and don't miss them. Now we have Judah and Joseph as a parallel. Now, this is where we find ourselves in these par with these parallels in this chapter. There, there's Judah and, and the story that, that flows all around the things that he does. Then you have Joseph in the story and all the things that flow around the things that uh, he's involved with. And as I look at both of these, this brings us into the first point, pitfalls and problems. I, I just thought it was so interesting. And what triggered um, my thinking was, if I, I'm going to get to it, so let me at least tell you what, where I'm going with this. So pitfalls and problems. There's always things that are going to be cropping up into our life that are potential pitfalls. Um, for Joseph, he was really put into a pit, but that's not necessarily his pitfall. But there, there's things that, could, that I'm calling pitfalls that, that, that are going to somehow, when you least expect it, be brought into your life as a challenge as an opportunity to do wrong or an opportunity to do right. And God doesn't seem to remove these opportunities of potential growth for us and maybe to show us what we are possibly capable of so that we don't. Now, he doesn't want us to fall into these pitfalls, but he allows these things to come our way if for no other reason we can learn some things about ourselves, and hopefully we won't mess up. And so we all are going to face pitfalls. We all make decisions, and we've all made bad decisions during those times, and we've made good decisions. But I'm going to tell you my end before I get there, so I don't want to. But we have to, regardless of decisions that we make and the things that are behind us, we still have to be like the Apostle Paul, forgetting those things which are behind. We have to live with the consequences, but realize that God's the master, one, uh, the master painter behind it all, and he's going to pull it together. All right, so I want to look at in the pitfalls and problems, first the problem, then the pitfalls. All right, the problem. I think in this instance, as I'm seeing it, the problem is 
let me say it this way. We need to have a proper view of sin. And the problem in the pitfall comes into if we don't have a proper view and perspective and an eye out towards sin. Now, now what made me think of this is chapter 38 and verse 26, where everything has happened. Now Judah is, 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 is in a pickle because everybody now knows he's a guy because behind why she's pregnant. And so Judah's summation of it is, and Judah acknowledged them and said about Tamar, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. And, and that just, for some reason, jumped off at me. What, and first of all, what, you know, assuming what we have here in English is, is how it should be, she, how does righteous fit into this at all? And then I'm thinking to myself, probably through my own eyes, what kind of response is that? He, he never, at least that I know of at this point anyway, acknowledges that what he did was sin. That's what blows me away. There's no, and, and, and his statement's almost the antithesis. She's been more righteous than I. Well, no, his response should have been, no, what I did was wicked, and oh God, blah, 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 blah. But there is none of that. And the problem is, as I see it, he does not come to grips with, at least as we have it in the narrative, it's not highlighted that the first thing out of his mouth is, I have sinned, that you don't have that. The parallel is Joseph. Chapter 39, in verse 9, Joseph identifies sin. So Judah makes no mention about sin, but Joseph identifies sin, and Joseph does it in 39.9, where he says, there is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now they both had the pitfall. Women, well, that didn't come out right either. Sorry, but the pitfall here for each one of them was, well, it was their own heart, but please follow where I am now. I'm, I'm all trying to be too careful of what I'm saying. The pitfall was for these guys, the woman in, in this story. And so, um, and, and you see it. The pitfall for Judah was this potential with Tamar. The pitfall for Joseph was the pitfall potentially with, uh, um, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, uh, Potiphar's wife. And so, so you have these two together. One guy doesn't acknowledge, at least immediately, what happened as sin. The other guy, before it even happens, identifies it as sin. So I, I just love that. And, and the two stories both have to do with a man and a woman and what choices are made and not made. And then the consequences, one way or the other. This is so beautiful. I hope I can convey this and bring it across. Now, what are the pitfalls? Basically, if I said already, but, but the pitfall and, and, and the allure of any sin is its forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit. It's no different from the garden. This forbidden fruit. 
Don't eat. Eat. Oh, ah, ooh, ah, look pretty. Ah, do I reach out and take it or not? And we're all confronted with these things in our lives. Do I reach out and take that forbidden fruit or not? That's the pitfall. And so Tamar is the fruit. What he thinks is the prostitute, where he's going to have a good time and hopefully walk away unscathed and just kind of put it in the background and move on. Well, Potiphar's wife, with her propositions, is that pitfall. So I, I love this because these stories in the Bible that we have bring us face to face with the potential of the human element that is within each one of us. And we can look at these things and hopefully somehow put it into our memory bank so that when that forbidden fruit is placed before us, which all of us have to deal with at some time, we will uh, not trip and fall into the pit. Right? I'm talking truth, right? This is, this is right. All right, so... So that's a pitfall, the pitfalls and the problems. I get excited. All right, now, the second point is progeny. Progeny. And, and all I want to highlight is what came out of... The, I just, I don't even know how to say this. It's always difficult because when I have new thoughts and I haven't even talked about it really once, I'm still kind of formulating all this stuff, so just hang with me. So... The progeny you have uh, from Judah and Tamar, children. You have out of Joseph and Asnath, who becomes Joseph's wife, children. Oh boy, I hope I can do justice to this. So you have Judah and Tamar. All right. And Luke, correct me on this, okay? So... You have Judah, who's, we'll call him a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Jew, all right? But then you have Tamar. She's a Gentile, right? Okay, I'm, all right, so you have Judah and Tamar. We'll just say it this way, a Jew and a Gentile, all right? You have Joseph and Asnath, if I'm saying her name right. She's an Egyptian. So, you have a Jew and a Gentile, right? All right, so you have halves now. The, 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 so, you have this thing together, which in my mind isn't really supposed to happen, but it, it happens. This, it never, Judah and Tamar never should have happened, and on top of that, she's a Gentile. You have Joseph and Asnath, which never should have happened because Joseph was sold against, put in a pit and sold against his will down here uh, into Egypt, and, and now he's given this Egyptian, this Gentile woman. So out of, situ uh, out of pitfalls, really, Joseph was in a pit. You have Judah with a pitfall on the side of the road waiting for him. Both of these... <laughs> are overcome by pitfalls, as I'm putting it out. And then there's some problems that develop out of this. And from these two now who've made decisions in the coupling that has happened, we now have progeny, offspring. 
All right, now, I won't go through all the verses because I don't want to be forever long on this, but from Judah and Tamar, and Tamar the Canaanite, you get Perez and Zerah. Perez and Zerah. We'll look at this a little bit more. I just want to lay this out. The one thing about um, um, Zerah that, I, you know, I'm trying to find more information, and the best I can tell is he's the ancestor of Achan. Remember Achan in Joshua 7? Uh, he... he, he um, he, he looked and took and, 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 and tried to hide and, and, and he just got, he and his family got demolished. So Lester Roloff would say, you know, Achan and all the little Achans just got thrown into the pit or however he said it, you know, because acorns, Achans, they probably said down south, acorns or Achans. So anyway, ach, the acorn and all the little acorns are just destroyed. Right, so you, um, so, but from Zerah, at least that I can tell by way of history, he's the ancestor of Achan. All right, that's that union. Judah, Tamar, out of it, Perez, and Zerah. Then you have Joseph and Asnath. Out of that, you get Manasseh and Ephraim. So Manasseh means forgetting uh, or forgetful or... Uh, just, just to forget. God has helped me to forget. Then you have Ephraim. His name means fruitful. So, out of, so, so here you have um, pitfalls and problems. Judah and Joseph. Tamar and Potiphar's wife. Then you have Judah again and Tamar. But now you have also Joseph and Asenath. From that Judah and Tamar, Pharaoh and Zerah, out of Joseph and Asenath, Manasseh and Ephraim. All right, now, that gets us into the third point, and I'm going actually pretty good here, and that's prophecy. All right, so all we're getting to all, we're getting, now we're building into prophecy. Very human people did very human things in very human situations, which may, we could say should maybe never have happened, but all of that interweaves and connects together in prophecy. So that takes us to Perez and Ephraim. I want to highlight that. And because I keep forgetting where I am. So from Judah and Tamar, you have Perez. And from Joseph and Asenath, you have Ephraim. So there's these two children that are born that are going to be very significant prophetically. And this is all developing out of mistakes and messes. <laughs> it's all developing out of stuff, circumstances and situations that he, we would look back and say, none of this should have happened. <laughs> and, 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 and through it all and behind it all, God's the spectator there. I can say it that way. Now, Pharez. So what's significant about Pharez? Well, through Pharez is, is carried the line of Messiah. And so Judah and Tamar get together, which never should have happened, a Jew and a Gentile. And out of that comes Pharez, who I will look at it. He the line of Messiah comes through him. 
And then you have from Joseph and, and Asnath, Ephraim. And there's prophetic elements involved in, in that, which we'll look at. All right, now, first off, Perez. He's in the line of Messiah. And we're just going to look at a couple passages to show this. Go up, if you would, to Ruth chapter 4. All right, so chapter 4, and we'll start reading at verse 11. Ruth 4, 11. Now, remember, Ruth is also a Gentile. She was a Gentile over in Moab, and Naomi and her husband never should have been, maybe, perhaps, potentially over there in the first place. And so you read the book of Ruth and you find out, well, they go over there, everything really falls apart. And then Naomi comes back with Ruth and, and Naomi says, I went out full and come back empty. And I've always said, well, what about this girl right here? She kind of bonds herself to you. Well, she's a Gentile. She comes in and becomes a part of Israel. And, and w w what we're going to see is how she fits as well in the prophecy. So anyway, uh, for them. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which is also interesting because Judah comes through Leah. And I don't want to re go back and rehearse all that, but that's interesting in itself. So the Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which two did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Epaphrath and be famous in Bethlehem and let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman, women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine own age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, uh, which is better to thee than ten, uh, seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, uh, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab Nishan, Nishan begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Oh, this is all incredible because Judah decided to stop off at the local brothel. Am I being too human with this? I don't know. I mean, I, I find this just fascinating. And then Ruth gets into the picture. All right, so also with this, go up to Matthew chapter 1. And of course, you're familiar with these verses. Matthew 1, 3 through, Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. 
So it says, And Judas begot Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, Ram. Uh, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot, that's another one, you have Rahab in this thing too. Salmon begot uh, Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you find out Rahab's in this thing. This is like incredible. All right, so from Pharaoh's you get the line of Messiah. Then from Ephraim and Judah, you have the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, and turn there if you would, in relation to uh, Ephraim and Judah being joined together and be one. Well, you have to have Ephraim born if this is going to happen. And, and, you know, again, Ephraim got born because Joseph is in this place where he shouldn't have been. But he was there, and we know when I say shouldn't have been, I'm just talking humanly speaking. And, and out of that, you get Ephraim, which is going to play a significant role in, in the prophetic uh, uh, future for the people of God. All right, so uh, if you want, Ezekiel 37. I was going to read the whole thing, but you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that. Let, let me just read this note from my Bible, because we're all familiar with, with this prophecy in Ezekiel where uh, Ephraim and Judah are apart, they're separated. They, they've not been together in history since this point in time. And one day they're going to be joined together. Well, this is, this is significant prophecy, but for it to happen, there has to be an Ephraim somehow on the scene, right? And so anyway, so let me just read this note. Ezekiel was commanded to write the names of Judah and Israel on separate sticks and then to join them together as one stick. This action represented the fact that the two nations would be rejoined as one nation at the same time as the national revival just prophesied in the previous chapter mentioned. The kingdom had split in 931 BC after the death of Solomon with 10 tribes in the north being known as Israel or Ephraim and two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah known as uh, Judah. These two kingdoms were never officially reunited in history. Therefore, this prophecy awaits its ultimate fulfillment during the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I, I don't know how to make any sense of this, and I, I don't know how to do for you, to you, what has happened to me in all of this, and I hope I can wrap it together. But we have all this incredible stuff going on. You, you have these, you have uh, pitfalls and problems. Out of that, there are consequences. In this case, I'm calling them the progeny. From that develops the potential of prophecy, which is going to impact and affect all of us because we're awaiting for Messiah to come, at which time, Ephraim, Israel, the 10 over here, somewhere we're fitting in all this, and Judah are going to be put together as one. And we are awaiting this to happen. And what made it even potentially possible for that to happen was this whole Ferris thing. 
And just the way prophet, where, where, um, the line of Messiah, how it weaves through all of this. And on top of that, that you have this parallel of Jew and Gentile in, in the offspring. To where, and correct me again on this, Luke, because I say so much stuff that I, uh, that, but Jesus was not a, even a pure Jew. Is that safe to say? Right? I, you know, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. And we're all awaiting that time when there will no longer be any mixture and Yeshua will come and set up his kingdom and everything will be set aright as it should be. But this is a story that's been building and taking place and developing over thousands of years, 2,000 years or more until Yeshua comes. And these seemingly minor incidents that transpired as they were happening in the lives of these people, we now have the, the privilege and blessing of, of seeing the whole thing from hindsight and see how it was all unfolding. But in the, at the time in the lives of these people, this was stuff that was happening that was just kind of like daily life lived. But daily life lived with right choices and wrong choices. We're, we're having these ramifications that ultimately end up in good news. That's the cool thing. It all somehow, the ugliness, the beauty of all the lives of God people somehow comes to an end where it receives this beautiful glorification and magnification of the grace of God when Yeshua comes back and sets it all right. Now, that brings me to the end. Personalization. So as I went through all this stuff and I was very pleased with all my study and everything that I saw, I said, well, great. You know, all I have is a bunch of knowledge. Wonderful. I mean, I can kind of, this is good news, and ooh, I put this all together, and, and this was fun, and this was a nice exercise, but so what? Well, I think the so what is that God, I can't talk for God, I don't know how to say this, God for better or for worse has to work with us <laughs> to bring about his will. And what we see is, actually I was sharing this with a fellow at work because we got talking about another topic and, and he, he, did, he wasn't necessarily diminishing the fact that I followed the Bible as my example because, you know, he started to say, in essence, well, yeah, they're just, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess. And, and I said, yes, but I said, that's what I like about the Bible is that God uses his people to accomplish his will and do his work. He uses flawed individuals. And so what we get out of this, this whole story, at least for me, was we're talking about Judah here. Nobody really thinks about, I don't know about you, but when I think of Judah... I don't, oh yeah, he looked like he did back then. I never think of that. But God used Judah, who did a thing he shouldn't have done. 
that could have had horrific ramifications. But look how it all fit into what God was doing. Joseph, a horrible situation, shouldn't have happened. Brothers hate him enough to, to make believe they killed him and then in the process sell him and he ends up someplace he shouldn't have been. But out of that, what, what goes on in his life plays a significant role. So how do we personalize this? Some takeaways to ponder. First off, God's people are a mess. God's people are a mess. Anybody here who's not been at some point a mess? Anybody here that's not created a mess? Anybody ever here not, that has never done anything they sure wish they had never done? There's nobody like that. All right, so how do we live with ourselves? Assuming we did a lot of good things. But how do we live with ourselves with the things we shouldn't have done? How do we deal with our sins? How do we deal with the decisions that we should not have made? Well, welcome to the party. They're all a mess. You know, except for perhaps Joseph and maybe Paul and a few others. But by and large... Our heritage is a mess. It's a mess. You can't get too far into Genesis and realize, this thing is falling apart faster than I could have imagined. But we're no different. We're no different. So, God's people are a mess. That also means we are a mess. I'm trying to make this good news. I hope it's coming across that way. But we're a mess, right? But God somehow takes this mess of ours and reformulates it into that which will bring glory to God if we'll, we will yield the journey and progress over to him. If we will yield the journey and progress over to him. God somehow takes this mess of ours and reformulates it into that which will bring glory to him if we will yield the journey and process over to him. I think that's the point of all of this. God didn't have to tell us all this stuff about these people. He, he could have, you know, made this nice version. But he shows the warts and the flaws. I mean, you don't get far. Look what Abraham did. And, hey, she's my sister. Go for it. You know, and, and all the things that all God's people have done. But yet, somehow, when we think of Abraham, whew, what a great guy. When we think of Moses, whoo, what a great guy. When we think of Judah, we think of oh, the Jews and, and the people of God, right? When we think of Joseph, we don't think, oh, he married an Egyptian and, you know. We, when you think of David, I mean, we should not think well about any of these people at points and times in their life. 
Look at Solomon for crying out loud. I, you know, I, I find great comfort and encouragement, not because misery likes, comf- uh, misery likes company, well, that's true, but if God could use them, we don't have to be the perfect Josephs. We don't have to be the perfect Pauls. There's room for some more Peters, <laughs> you know? There's some more rooms for these Abraham types, and, you know, there's, there's, and so as we're living it in this parallel perspective, all we can see is the mess and the morass. But God somehow does that Romans 8.28 thing where all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are to call according to his purpose, to those that love him. I don't know what to do with that. Otherwise, all of us probably here, 90% of us, we should just go blow our brains out now and be done with it. Because chances are, I know I will, you probably will too, we're going to screw up somewhere else down the road you know, we, we might have several years to live. The potential to screw up again is very possible. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul had to live with stuff that he did even prior to his salvation. And what did he say? Forgetting those things that you are behind and reaching unto those things which are before, I press towards a mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean he's just giving himself a free get out of jail thing. It's just he realizes there's nothing I can do but turn it all over to God. And folks, that's all we can do is turn it over to God, leave it in his hands. But we cannot have the problem that Judah had and not acknowledge the sin. Even David did that. He had to be confronted, but he acknowledged his sin. And that's what makes it possible for God to kind of clean up what we've done, bring glory to himself, and kind of jumpstart us again to have some usefulness to him. Doesn't mean we won't have to live with the consequences. Doesn't mean we might even diminish. But we have to realize, didn't take God by surprise. God wasn't taken by surprise with any of this. As a matter of fact, he understood where prophecy was going to lead to and play out. God's not taken by surprise when we do our stupid stuff. And it just doesn't stymie me the plan of God. He's not out there saying, oh man, what am I going to do now? I was counting on Warren. You know, he's got it all figured out. And so we can live with ourselves. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to come clean the best we know how. And then just go forward for God. We all wish we could go back and fix things, but we can't. And the truth of the matter is our present effectiveness and future effectiveness is going to be a combination of the bad of us and the good of us. And that is what is molding us if we will allow God 
Now fall victim to Satan who wants to destroy us ultimately, but just give ourselves over to God. He will use us to whatever capacity he can. That's just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Then we have the responsibility to let our lives be a story, not in all the gory details, for our children and our grandchildren, that they will learn through us. Because you know what? My kids have learned their screw-ups, and they mess up, and they disappoint God. Well, they have to know how to live with that, because one day their kids are going to grow up and be a mess and do things and disappoint God. And it cannot destroy us. That's why we have to do the Shema and remind ourselves and know our heritage and go back to our forefathers and, and be constantly renewing our acquaintance to these guys and see what God did in and through them in spite of themselves. And if he did it for them, he'll do it for us. Let's pray. So, Father, I, I thank you for what you did for me as I put this all together. And all I try to do is just try to bless folks with stuff that has, in my own study, helped. And I hope this will be a blessing. The truth is, we, we, we are who we are and what we are. We are the sum of what we've done. We are what we are now, and we're going to be going forward and still be creating and recreating ourselves into new images based upon whatever we do or don't do. But, Father, help us to realize that you love us. If we're saved and washed in the blood of Yeshua, you love us. And that you're going to take this together if we can just constantly come before you, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thank you that those of us that are in Yeshua, we stand already before you justified and set apart and you see us pure in Yeshua. Our problem is we're still having to trudge through the mud of this world and this life. But thank you that we're already seated with Yeshua in the heavenlies. So help us to just yeah, progress through this journey, through the pitfalls, through the highs. Keep us humble, but yet give us strength and courage to live and serve you. And Father, help us to go through this next coming week having pity and mercy on some of those that are already a mess around us. And help us to never lose sight of the hole of the pit from which we've been dug. And to constantly bring glory to Yeshua who has clothed us with anything that could possibly make us look good. It's all that we have in him. So, Father, just pull it together. Use it for your glory. In Yeshua's name, amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Face on the mount of your grace.